So keep it in prayer and, uh, and make sure you turn out and bring someone with you. Also, on Wednesday nights, as we're studying through the Bible, we're in the book of Proverbs right now, and it's just been exciting study, not because I'm so exciting, but it's just great stuff. There's so much, so much wisdom in the book of Proverbs, so I would invite you to come on out Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue our study through the book of Galatians. We've been the last few weeks in the section in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians presents the reality of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. It contrasts flesh and spirit. People who live according to the flesh live in a certain way. People who are walking in the Spirit, having a living, breathing relationship with God, live a different way. There's supposed to be a difference in our lives. And as he describes what Spirit-led living is like, as he describes the fruit of the Spirit, what God does in our lives, he paints such a clear picture of what life ought to be like for us. And it's disconcerting a bit, too, because... We look at it and we realize how short we fall from what God really wants us to get out of life and put into life. The level of our living so often, we can profess to be spiritual people, but some of the supposedly most spiritual people, when you look at their lives, it just looks an awful lot like the works of the flesh. On the other hand, some people that we would deem to be less spiritual, we have to admit their lives shine forth with these characteristics that he talks about. And you just can't get away from it. If the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control, that's what life looks like if you are walking in the Spirit. So, in a way, it's frustrating because we'll all look in the mirror and say, I don't know if I really look like this. But on the other hand, it's great news because the good news of the gospel is that if you walk with Jesus and you enter into this relationship with the Spirit, He will put these characteristics and virtues in your life by His hand and by His strength. So the news might be frustrating because you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I don't look like this. But the news is great because He wants to help you to look like that. Last couple weeks, we looked at love and joy and peace. Today, we're going to look this morning at the next three aspects of this picture of spirit-led living. It's long-suffering and kindness and goodness there in verse 22. Your version, if you have a different version, it may say something a little bit different, but It's all the same idea. You can tell that as you look at all these words, it's difficult to pin down a singular definition on any of them. But as we look at them used together, we can sort of delineate between them in a way that we realize what God is doing is painting a picture of different aspects of everything that he wants to do in our lives. And so we see slight and subtle distinctions between them, and we will look for some of those. As we've said before, love is really singularly the fruit of the Spirit. All of these other things are descriptions of that love that's real. See, there are a whole lot of people who say they love, but it really doesn't look like love when you get down to it. 
Love is something that's very specific and can be defined in a, in a beautiful way to describe basically everything you've ever wanted life to be for you. And it's what God wants to do within you. And so we saw last week, love results in a joy and a peace. But here, now as we look on, the next word, long-suffering, is there. Long-suffering, fruit of the Spirit. There are some translations that just translate it patience. And that's okay. That's not a bad definition of long-suffering. But I like long-suffering. The reason that they choose to translate it that way is because that gets down to the root, really, of the word. When we talk about patience, we just talk about waiting. But the word here indicates a waiting in light of difficulty, a waiting in light of suffering and hardship. The word that's translated long-suffering, the Greek word is made up of two different words. One of them is macro. Macro is long, basically, in the Greek, or distant. And thumia is the other word, and that's a word that means a strong wind. Now, it doesn't mean a long, strong wind, but the word thumia, or stormy wind kind of a thing, developed by the time of the New Testament to refer to passion, to refer to strong emotional response. Because when our heart starts to beat faster and, and our, you know, our pulse starts pounding and blood begins to go through our veins, one of the things that happens from that physiological response is we need more oxygen. And as a result, you start to breathe heavier when your heart starts pumping harder. And when people become passionate, when they become emotional or upset, as is usually the case when this word is used, it's referring to really sucking air. It's, you start getting upset and your veins begin to tighten in your neck and all of a sudden you're... you're it's what you do right before you swing. <laughs> you're just... Or right before you cock the gun and fire. It's oh, maybe a little growling comes out too as that wind gets sucked past your vocal cords. Now, long suffering, where that comes from, you might be you know, familiar with the term macro. We use it as a prefix on a lot of different words. One of the most common is in terms of uh, economics. The microeconomics where you zoom in for a close look and macroeconomics is more where you get a, more of a wide angle, large picture, longer term, global view of things. It's the same way in a camera where you can either zoom in up close or you can look at the bigger picture. I still don't understand why a macro lens tends to you be used for close-up pictures, but I think it's because it wants to fill the picture and get a bigger picture. But the word macro means long. So the simple definition of long-suffering, it has to do with suffering. It's when things are uncomfortable and you're tempted to react emotionally, and instead, what you do is you have a perspective that allows you to just keep breathing. Now, those of you who have been through natural childbirth appreciate this a little bit. Because when you take your childbirth class, they teach you how to breathe. Now, I'm convinced it does absolutely nothing. I think it's because you need to feel like you can do something. So you think that somehow breathing, and you know, men can always relate to being a coach. 
because we would rather sit on the couch and tell other people what they should have done. And, and so we get to do that in childbirth, pretend to be important. They can have the baby without us. We make our initial contribution, and after that, you know, we're really not needed, but they want to make us feel needed, and so we learn to coach the breathing. And what it is, it's the idea of it passes the time, basically. Hey, this contraction isn't going to go on forever. So, come on, just breathe, but slow it down. Get a lot of oxygen. Take a big breath. It's hanging in there. It's deciding that though this hurts, I'm not going to quit. Though this is painful, though I am suffering, it's important for me to just keep breathing. If I'm not breathing, I'm screaming. Screaming doesn't hurt anything except all the other people that have to listen to you. And so again, childbirth coaching is for the benefit of the spectators, certainly. But life is that way too. You might feel like screaming, but if you scream, you make it miserable for everyone else around you. So they just say, keep breathing, nice long breaths, cleansing breath. Do you remember that one if you've had a kid? And it doesn't clean anything. It just tells you, keep breathing, shut up, stop screaming, long-suffering. It's so important that we learn how to just suck our way through life sometimes and just keep breathing and keep moving and hanging in there. Because one thing life is very good at is making you suffer. Suffer in ways that you could never imagine. Suffer to a degree that you could never imagine. Things in life just hurt a lot of times. But we can't quit. And we can't just scream and we can't just give up and get angry. If we do, it just makes it worse. And so the Holy Spirit is able to give us time to allow us to zoom back and get a perspective when you're having a baby, that perspective is to realize, right now I feel like I have a rider truck being driven out my body, but in reality it's a baby that I will love and hold and, and care for, and I need to keep that in mind. This is about a baby. This isn't just about pain. Well, in so many areas of our lives, that's the way it is. It hurts. We're going through misery and pain, and God wants to help us to get an eternal perspective to back up a little bit, to give it some time. I heard someone one time define patience in terms of being patient with people, and they said patience is letting now be a little more expansive. Uh, it's saying, okay, I want it now, but let's broaden now a little bit. It's the gift of time, really. It's the capacity to say, I know what this feels like right now, but I'm going to go through this. I'm going to keep breathing. I'm going to lengthen the scope of what I'm willing to take. I'm not going to say, that's it. It's over right now. Instead, I'm going to say, no, I'm going to hang in there. I remember when Brian and Cheryl Broderson were having their first child. As soon as Cheryl started to feel the pain of the contractions, she got up, and they were in the little birthing room, and she got up and grabbed her suitcase and said, I'm not doing this. I'm leaving. <laughs> You'd have to know Cheryl to appreciate how she meant it. And for so many of us, we get that way with life. It's starting to hurt, and I'm going to run. 
There are people who have been thwarted in having decent relationships because every time it starts to hurt, they bail because their feelings have been hurt before and they just aren't, they don't feel comfortable enough to realize this is supposed to hurt. Well, there's a song, probably several of them, that talk about love hurts. And it does. It's supposed to. And yet, if you can keep breathing and hang in there, love also feels really good. It's also the greatest blessing in your life. But long-suffering needs to be there. Patience needs to be there for that to happen. Now, you might say, I, you know, I'd like patience, but I want it now. The Bible says that patience comes by the trying of your faith. So you actually learn to be more patient by being in pain, by being in difficulty. And yet God gets a bad rap. We act like God's not doing anything for us because it hurts. When that hurt is really God developing within us the capacity to be stretched. How many of the things that you think about today, that you worry about today, how many of them really are going to matter six months from now or a year from now or 10,000 years from now? Most of them won't matter. Get that perspective, the Lord would tell us. Don't be exploding at someone because of something that they're doing that your reaction to it is a complete overreaction. We tend to be knee-jerk reactors. And then later, you feel really stupid about it. It's really rough when you're a public person and this happens. You overreact to something. One of my favorites was years ago. I can't remember which earthquake it was, but it happened really early in the morning. And those of us who have lived in California all our lives, hey, earthquakes are not that big of a deal. We feel it shaking, and we're like, whoa, this is a pretty good one. And then we start to go, you know, some of them feel more rolling, and this one was kind of more jerking, and we, and we analyze it. And then the next thing, after we know the kids are okay and whatever, we start to guess what the magnitude was. It's just, I don't know, it's like, what do you think? I say 6.2. I think that was a 6.4. It's sort of the same thing we do when we see those, those um, trailers on the side of the road that tell you how fast you're going and it turns red if you get above the speed limit, we look at that and go, how fast can I get going before I can get up to that sign? It's just a, don't ask me how I know they turn red, but I... <laughs> <laughs> we're the same way with the earthquakes. We're like, oh, how bad is it? So what do we do? We turn the TV on. Not to find out if anyone was hurt, but to see who's right. I've said it was under six, and you say it was... And so... Well, you turn it on, and in this particular case, there was only one network that happened to be on the air at the time. And they had a reporter named Kent Shocknick, and he was obviously new to California. And some of you who are old enough remember this. This poor guy, he's never lived it down. Instead of calmly giving the news, Kent Shocknick starts freaking out. And then he finally, the camera's on him, and another aftershock came, and he dives under the news desk. I don't know what he thought was going to happen, how that cheap desk would ever protect him, but here's the TV, things are shaking, and the guy's gone. And, you know, it's probably been 20 years, and the guy, they still call him Kent Aftershock Nick. <laughs> made a fool of himself by overreacting. Well, the truth is, over time, we all do a lot of that. 
I saw a great one just this week. There was a Good Morning America from New York on, and, and this girl was doing a study by these guys who were supposedly experts on how to avoid getting ripped off. And these guys took her out on the streets of New York, and they had a, a four-inch grinder, and they were showing how easy it is to steal a bicycle. And so she's talking very self-important and sophisticated, and the guy's grinding away at the chain. And his partner's there close to him, explaining what they're doing. And the grinder slips, and it looks like it hits the partner. The guy goes down on the ground, blood spewing from his neck. He's screaming, and it's all on camera. And then they jump up laughing because it was just a joke. It was a setup. He just had a bunch of ketchup in his hand and wiped it there. And they think, oh, that's pretty good, a little juvenile. That's why I laughed. But... Um, <laughs> Then this poor woman reporter just makes a fool of herself. She's screaming at them, lecturing like your mother when you were a kid, and just going on and on, and that was inexcusable, and I apologize, and it's like, and she is going to be on every Funniest Home videos, and when news people freak out specials, and this woman is going to live forever on the Fox network because she overdid it. Now, I'm sure by now she's looking at, at, at YouTube or Drudge Report or somebody who runs this video. You'll have to see it. It's really pretty funny. And, and she's just going, okay, why didn't I just take a joke? And, but she's going to live with that. She was on camera. And, but how many of us react the same way, overreact to things that the kids are doing? Think of all the times that you warned your kids as to what could happen because of what they're doing. How many of us grew up really believing that shooting rubber bands at each other will put somebody's eye out? Or throwing a paper airplane, don't do it, you'll put somebody's eye out. I don't know about you, how many people have you honestly met who have one eye and <laughs> you go, wow, what happened to you? Oh, rubber band, you know, <laughs> paper airplane. And yet we get these crazy traditions and we freak out and overreact to things. And yes, I know your heart's pumping. Yes, I know you're breathing harder, but just keep breathing. It's, most of these things are going to be okay. I mean, I get the feeling my son William's down in Mexico somewhere. I just know he's in the country of Mexico. He left on Friday. I figured he'd be back Saturday, but he didn't come back last night, so he's either in jail or he's, there was good surf. And, you know, you can't get him on a cell phone because down there they don't get reception. And so, you know, if we didn't have church today, I'd feel like driving out of Mexico. Now, where are you going to look? The whole coast of, of Baja. And so I call him, and I get my breath, I calm down, and I just call him and leave a voicemail and say, hey, Will, hope the surf's good, and uh, just checking up on you when you get back in country or on the phone, uh, give me a call and, you know, have fun. But inside, I'm reacting like Ann would. Because <laughs> the truth is, I'm like, my kid's in Mexico. Anything could be happening. But you learn over time. He's been to Mexico a bunch of times, never called, never let us know, never came back when he said he would. He's done the same in Costa Rica. He, did, he, he went to Ireland one time on a missions trip and stayed an extra week without calling. And I just realized, you know, I can't get rid of this kid if I wanted to. He, he always comes back. And so you get that perspective that goes, you know, okay, the truth is, yeah, something bad could have happened, but there's nothing I can do about it anyway. And that's what he always throws on me. Well, what would you do if something did happen to me? I just freak out, same thing. And so many things in life are that way.
If you would just give it a little, if you would just count to 10 or count to 100 or just think a little bit or zoom the lens back a little bit, you'd realize, you know, most things aren't as big a deal as we make them. Most things that hurt don't hurt for very long. Somebody bumps into you, and, and, or they step on you when you have bare feet in the house. Ah, and you get all upset, and you're yelling at them, why'd you do that? You feel like hitting them, and, you're, and it's like, by the time you quit screaming, it doesn't even hurt anymore. You wish it did. You look down, and there's no mark, and you're like, oh, shoot. You know, is this bleeding? No, it's not bleeding. Oh, man, I was hoping it was. I could milk this a little bit. But that's the way we are. We overreact to everything. And so the fruit of the Spirit is that we get a longer-term perspective, that we're willing to suck it up, breathe a little harder, work our way through it, don't overreact, and to realize that if you love, it means you're going to have to put up with a lot of stuff. It means that there's some suffering that's going to happen and it's going to be long. This is the first word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talks about love. He says, love suffers long, same word, and is kind. And so here, loving kindness, loving, or uh, um, long suffering, and then kindness following right in its steps. But long suffering, you're going to suffer whether you like it or not. If you find that you take your time in overreacting to it, that suffering will be much more durable. It'll be much more beneficial. You'll see. You'll get through it. Why do we as parents throw such a fit over things our kids do when we've done the same things? I, it's hilarious to me that when you see people, and I used to see it in the school all the time, where people would come in and their kid got in trouble for cussing in school, and cussing in school, cussing anywhere is a bad thing. But I sat there and had parents cussing at their kid for cussing in school. And I'm like, I'm listening to it, and I just start laughing. What's so funny? I go, do you listen to yourself? The kids loved it. The parents hated it, but... <laughs> But get some perspective. Ask God to give you a perspective that doesn't make a bigger deal out of things just because they hurt right now. And so, again, long-suffering. The next, next aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, the next a- aspect of love, is the word that's translated here in our version in the New King James, kindness. Kindness. That word... Um, is a, the English word kindness has almost lost its meaning today. The word kind comes from kindred, which is your kin, your relatives. What kindness means is treat people like they're a part of your family. Now, there was a time in our country when that meant something. There was a time when our image of family was the cleavers, just this nice idyllic lifestyle. And some of you grew up in a cleaver household almost. Most of us, it was a little more Simpsons than Cleaver. Today, families, we don't even think of it that way. Nobody's calling anyone ma'am or sir or being polite and, and those kinds of things. But the idea of kindness here is the idea of showing common courtesy. The root of the Greek word here for kindness is a word that means to be employed, like you have a job. And they use it to mean useful. It came to mean conciliatory, it came to mean courteous, polite, and kind. That's what it is. 
And God here is letting us know that if the Spirit's working in your life, simplest way I can say it is, you'll be nice. Now, where does this niceness come from and how it ties in with the definition of the root word, employ? There are people who, if they want to keep their jobs, they learn to be nice. They learn to be nice to people even when the people are being rude to them because that's what you do because it's your job to treat the customer right. Now, just like families have devolved from the Cleavers to the Simpsons and worse, um, the treatment of the customer has devolved as well. I haven't heard for a long time anyone say to me, the customer is always right. It used to be the fundamental principle of business that the customer was right. But today I'm amazed at how sometimes I am treated. You remember if you're old enough what it was like to fly in an airplane or to deal with an airline counter back 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They were so nice it was almost sickening. They were just so, oh, can I get anything for you? You're trying to get your plane on the airplane and they're giving you mints and nuts and playing cards and pillows. And now, if you're lucky, if you get on fast enough, there might be a pillow wedged up somewhere in the luggage compartment. They're not nice to you. They don't care about you. The whole, nobody's coming up and saying, oh, coffee, tea, or milk, or any of those things. They'll come down the aisle, ram you with that heavy cart and throw you some pretzels and, you know, that's about it and charge you for a sandwich. It's like, man, what happened? Sorry if you work in the airline industry. <laughs> but let's face it, it's a lot different. When people wait on you now. They don't want to wait. You're the one who's going to wait. They shouldn't call a waiter a waiter. They should call a customer a waiter because that's what you do because nobody's in a hurry. And the way they train their employees... They're trained by Chef Ramsay in Hell's Kitchen, you know. They're trained, by, they're trained by Paul Tuttle at American Choppers. They're like, yeah, that's the way, that's the work environment today. But there was a time, and you younger people will have to use your imagination, when if you were at work, you were expected to put up with a lot of baloney. You were expected to be nice to people even when they weren't nice to you. There are still some places where it's still that way. I think it's probably still that way at Nordstrom's, though I don't shop there. But from what I've heard from others, um, you know, they go out of their way to make you feel welcome. They'll, they say that at Nordstrom's, there have been women who made a dress or who bought a dress at Kmart or something and brought it back to Nordstrom's and they'll take it in return because the customer's right there. But that's kind of the idea that, of this word here for kindness. It's that old school idea that, you know what? I am paid to be nice to you. I am paid to treat you with dignity. I am expected and, and required and trained to make you feel special when you come across me and you come up at my counter, when you encounter me. And the truth is, that is our job to be nice. Now, you may do other things for a living, but as a Christian, God gives you a job, and he says, I am employing you to go out and be nice to people and to be kind. This same word here, same word is used when uh, in um, the passage where it talks about over in Romans chapter 2, I think verse 4, where it says the kindness or the goodness of God is what brings a person to repentance. Now, it's not there in that context talking about Jesus dying for us. 
It's talking about the way in which he blesses people indiscriminately, the rain falling on the just and the unjust. If you read it in the context of Romans chapter 1 and 2, you'll see it and you'll get the point. The idea is that God is just nice. And if we are going to reflect his love, then we need to be nice too. We can't hide behind, well, I'm just a gruff kind of person, and they'll understand deep down below, you know, I'm trying to teach you to be tough. I'm trying to teach you to deal with life. No, it's, it's to be nice. It's to, to care about people. And that's what has always brought people to repentance, by the way. And that's what has always brought people to Jesus Christ. It's not at first when they're so impressed with what we know it's not at first with when they, they see, boy, you've got some great arguments, or man, I'm afraid of you. Maybe I better f- learn to see your God. It's also not because they go, you've got some great music, or you've got some nice donuts outside the church or whatever. It's when you start to treat them with a dignity and respect and a friendliness and a, and a kindness You start to treat them like family in the best sense of the word, that they go, that's amazing. And it catches their attention. And it's what causes people to want to be different. It's what causes people to want to change. And then, as the Lord, through his goodness and kindness, draws people so they get a little closer and they they want to see what the scoop is, then they find out truly how much he loves them and how he gave his life for them. Sometimes go through the Gospels and look at how nice Jesus was to people who other people weren't very nice to. Check, Jesus is like a study in kindness. I think of John 4, the Samaritan woman who he met at the well. She was surprised that anyone was at the well in those days because she was a woman who had been disgraced over and over again. Men had used her. She had been married many times, was now living with a guy she wasn't married to. Women didn't trust her because she knew, they knew that she, could be, she would be able to attack the sanctity of their marriage by involving herself with their husbands. And so she went to the well at a time when no one was there because she just probably got tired of taking the abuse and dealing with the looks and feeling like I'm so disgusting. And here Jesus comes along and he's just nice to her. He didn't start screaming at her, preaching at her, oh, you need to know the four spiritual laws. He just struck up a conversation. She goes, you're a Jew. Jews don't respect Samaritans. What is up with you? You're, you're throwing me off here. He was just nice to her. And he struck up a conversation with her. He would do the same with a religious guy in the chapter before in John chapter 3. He did it with Nicodemus. It was just nice, allowing a conversation to happen. But people, whether they were tax collectors who everyone despised, like Zacchaeus or like Matthew, he called as a disciple, whether it was those smelly fishermen, James and John, Peter and Andrew, others, whoever it was, a woman who was a prostitute who came to his feet and everybody goes, don't you realize what kind of woman this is? You let her touch you, it's going to ruin your reputation. And he goes, no, that's okay. I'm going to respect her. Look, she is expressing her appreciation for me, and I am not at all embarrassed to be seen with this hooker. Not a bit. That was the way he was. Whether it was the woman caught in adultery that they wanted to stone, as he 
showed a concern for her, got rid of the guys who wanted to kill her, and then he said, I'm not going to condemn you. You can go, and you're free to not sin anymore. Your life can turn around at this moment. Or whether it was lepers who no one was supposed to touch. It was, it was forbidden that you would get anywhere near a leper, and yet he would reach out and touch them. And he still does that today, or most of us wouldn't be here. He has a kindness that breaks any barrier that man would put up. And though it would look like he has nothing to gain by caring about a person or being nice to them, he knows, he sees, and he wants to explain and wants us to get it, that there's a simple kindness, just a respect um, that would elevate people from a low position, and that is what leads people to change, to repentance. And so that's what he wants to do in our lives. That's how he wants to work for us and in us. And if we as Christians are acting like we don't want to get too close to that dirty world, we don't want to pollute ourselves by lowering ourselves to being friendly with people who are doing bad things. And instead, we want to stand off at a distance and just take pot shots at them. Then I don't care how spiritual we say we are, we're not spiritual. Because walking in the Spirit brings forth the fruit of the Spirit. And listen, if you are not a nice person, you are not filled with the Spirit. And I'm not talking about being nice to me or nice to each other. Somebody has said, if you're not nice to a waiter, you're not nice. And the fruit of the Spirit, a part of it is being nice. It's reflecting the character of Jesus Christ and caring about people who maybe can't help us. And this kindness, again, that is your job. How do you act when your boss is watching? Is it different than when your boss isn't? I remember years ago at Calvary, if I'd get somebody on the phone for counseling and they were just being rude and obnoxious, and I would be long-suffering to a point, but after about 10 minutes, my long is gone, and you know, I'd start to put them in their place, and they would get angry and start screaming. They, I can't believe a pastor at a church would talk to me like this, and then they would inevitably, when we're ready to hang up, they would say, what's your name? And I would say, uh, Romaine. <laughs> Seriously, because I knew Romaine got so many complaints every day, no one thought anything of it. But the truth is, we're all employed. God is watching. He is there, and He is seeing. How are you going to treat the people at the counter, whichever side of the counter you're on? How are you going to treat your family? How are you going to treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord? How are you going to complete total how are you going to treat total strangers? Are you going to be nice? Are you going to be kind? Are you going to give them slack? Are you going to be patient with them? Give some time for something to develop, for something valuable to take place? And that's your job. And you go, well, I'm not paid for that. Yes, you are. Do you understand? God is kind to you so that you can be kind to others. He, it's why he says that when you've been forgiven of much, you love much. Do you think God has paid you well? I think he has. 
I think he's paid us all well. He blesses us beyond our imagination. And he says, your job is to go be nice to people. Your job is just to, it's not a huge thing. It's just simple courtesy and respect. And that's fruit of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do this for us. He goes on after saying long-suffering and kindness. Finally, the last one we'll look at today is goodness. The word goodness refers to a goodness that's deep inside. It's a character trait. It's something that flows forth from within you. But it's often translated as generous because it's when there's something that's in you that makes you want to give. The same word, agathos, is over right in the next chapter, in chapter 6 and verse 10, where in the context he's talking about giving. And what you sow, you'll reap. And in verse 10 he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good, agathos, to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This goodness is a goodness that gives, that says, here's what I have, I'm willing to share. Here's what God has given me, it's not just for me. Now, our flesh tells us to hang on to everything that we have, to be greedy and miserly because you never know when you're going to need it. You better be ready just in case. And so we hang on to our stuff, even if we don't need it, even if we don't want it. We keep clothes that don't fit, that we've never liked. Tags are still on them after they've been hanging in the closet for a year. And there are people who don't have clothes who would love to have those clothes, but, you know, I can't part with it. After my diet kicks in, it'll fit again. (laughs) Hey, there are people who already fit into your clothes because they don't have enough to eat. And they'd love to have it. And there's so much that we have is, you know, tools that we don't use and toys that we bought that... Somebody would just be so blessed by us just sharing with them. And that's goodness. That's a flowing forth kind of a goodness. It's a quality of goodness. It's a generosity that says, whatever I have, it's not just for me. You know, when you go to a a restaurant and, and there's, you know, something that, a special dessert, and you order that one dessert, and you taste it, and it's like incredible. It's like the best dessert you've ever eaten in your life. What do you do? Do you say, you guys have got to try this. This is most amazing. Or do you sit there and people go, so how is it? You go, it's okay. Because you don't want to even give up one bite. (laughs) Well, the truth is, God has been so generous with us. God is like, well, we use the term generous when it comes to restaurants. When we say that restaurant has really generous portions, it means they give you a lot, like Claim Jumper. Claim Jumper, I like their food. It's really good. But the main thing about Claim Jumper is you will never go away hungry. You walk in and it's like, man, I'm starved. This is the day when I'm going to have a big piece of that mud whatever dessert it is. And you're going, yeah, I'm not going to eat much. I'll, I'll, I'll pass on the root beer candies on the counter because I want to have room for mud. And then you get your food, it's piled up high, you go, you know, you go, I'll have a half order of the onion rings. The half order of the onion rings the size of this pulpit. You're going, man, does anyone ever order the whole order? But of course, you don't want to waste your money by leaving some food on the table. 
And, you know, most of it isn't going to be good after you warm it up. And so, wow, what a generous place. But there's no way you're going to even delve into the dessert. It's, you might, somebody, then you'll share. If you get it, yeah, everybody here, yeah, bring 12 spoons and one slice of mud pie. I think I can wedge in a couple little pieces. But life is that way. God is so generous with us. He's like claim jumper. And yet, we gorge ourselves and we don't want to share. We don't want to split it. Whenever we go to a restaurant, Ann always wants to share something with me. And I'm like, just get what you want. It's not that big of a deal if you leave some of it. You get what you want, I'll get what I want. And then inevitably, she, she either talks me into sharing with her, or she just orders soup or something, and then I, she knows I have to give her part of mine. But <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's never even been one time when I shared with her that I didn't go, you know, I just didn't get enough. And I could always order more later. But it's weird. If we split something, I'm still full. I don't know how that works. I, it might be God. I don't know. <laughs> that the more you share, the more he gives you. That's definitely the principle that's taught in Galatians 6. And we'll see that in a few weeks when we get over there. But God has this principle that he gives to you so that you can give. So that you can share. He blesses you so that you can bless others. And that's a part of his love. It's being willing to share. It's being willing to give. It's having that kind of goodness, not just thinking of yourself, not just how much can I get. It's receiving his generosity and being able to share it. And, you know, even if you throw the stuff away, you'd usually be better off. It feels good just to get rid of stuff. And sometimes people trip out about, you know, well, I don't know, I want to give to the Lord's work, but I'm not sure which ministry to give it to and everything. Well, I definitely think you should ask God to give you his wisdom and to lead you as to what to do with your money. But you know what? The truth is, if you give your money to some ministry that's going to rip it off, it's still going to be better for you. You're going to be blessed because of it. The widow who was given credit by Jesus because she gave her two mites put her mites into an evil, wicked temple system where it didn't do anything good at all, and yet Jesus congratulated her. It's about the heart. You know, and sometimes if you see somebody on the street and they look like they're having a hard time, and, you know, you go give them five bucks, it, yeah, they might go buy drugs with it or buy booze with it or whatever, but you know what? It'll be good for you to get rid of it anyway. It's not, you don't need to be so technical and scrutinizing about your generosity unless you think that's the way God is. And if you tell me that God isn't going to give you anything unless he knows you're going to use it responsibly, then I'll say you should do the same. But how much, before you were a Christian, how much of what God gave you did you blow how much of what God gave you did you spend on things that were stupid or destructive? How much of it are you wasting right now on yourself? And God continues to give to you and to ask you to, in turn, give to others. It goes with his love. It goes beyond politeness, kindness, yes, but putting it on the line and being willing to give, that too. And that's fruit of the Spirit. It's something that only God can do for you. He wants you to notice if you don't have a heart for it because that's your trigger to go back and get closer to Him and to begin to walk in the Spirit. But first, if you think you're spiritual 
and people don't think you're nice or they don't think you're patient or they don't think you're generous, you're fooling yourself. You're not spiritual, and I'm not either, if that's what I see in my life. But it's exciting to see God begin to work in us. That is thrilling to me. Right now on, on Wednesday nights as we're going through Proverbs, I've been sharing with the people, and I've seen already that God is doing some things in people's lives just because they're saying, okay, I'm going to give an hour a week to come out and, and talk about God's wisdom and ask for him to give me this wisdom. And here, as we're talking about walking in the Spirit, I'm seeing changes in people's lives. Some of you are seeing God do things in your life. Now you go, yeah, well, I'm not changing as much as I would like, as fast as I would like. Be patient. Be long-suffering. God is doing his work. He's planting the seeds, and you will see change happen. One of my friends was telling me after I had been talking in church about patience and, and especially in line at the grocery store, he was in line and it was one of those times and it just wasn't going well and people were getting upset and it was bad. And, and he was just, he said, God just gave him this amazing patience. And you'd have to know him to know he's not a patient person at all. And it was funny because when he got up there, they were so amazed that he was being so nice that the manager came over and they said, I can't believe how nice you're being here, and gave them $2 out of the till. I don't know if they're supposed to do that, but it was like he was so blessed as he shared it with me. He wasn't going, oh, look at me. He was going, I can't believe it. I got, I got $2 for being patient. I, I'm never patient. And those are the kinds of things that you should expect to see happening in your life where God surprises you by allowing his fruit to pop up in an area that you wouldn't expect. By having people start to have an impression of you, not that, boy, you're a jerk, but instead they're going, yeah, I've never met anyone so nice, so friendly, so respectful, so patient, so giving. God wants to do it. I am not giving you homework to say, now, go out there and be patient. Go out there and be kind. Go out there and be generous. No. What I'm saying is, draw close to the Lord. Walk in the Spirit. Let Him do it. And all I'm saying is, look at your life and you should see these things happening. If they're not happening, something's wrong. Go back to the source and find out what's wrong. But rejoice and celebrate when, even in a small way, you see, what happened? That time, I didn't snap in anger. That time I didn't lash out with a rude comment. Or I just gave something that really is, is a sacrifice for me, and I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm excited. I'm not as cheap as I was. And when you see that happening, it's a confirmation from God. The Spirit is working in your life. And don't get proud about it. It's not you. It's Him. But He gives us His Word to teach us that we choose do I want to walk in the flesh or in the spirit? And if I want to walk in the flesh, I need to sow. If I want to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh, I need to sow to the spirit. If I'm satisfied with a hateful and mean life, by all means, sow to the flesh. You'll get there. You'll get worse and worse. And, you know, maybe you'll collect more and more stuff and you'll have less and less friends and God won't be able to use you. Don't be mean and think you're spiritual. Don't be cheap and tight and think you're spiritual. Don't be a knee-jerk reactor and call it spirituality. It's not. 
The fruit of the Spirit is clear. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and the rest of the things that we'll cover next week. Let's pray. Lord, any one of us that's, that has a shred of honesty and decency to us, when we look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit, we realize how much we need you because we aren't doing all this stuff. Oh, we may be stronger in some area than others, and other people may see us as being this way, but hey, we live with ourselves 24 hours a day, and you live with us too, and you know what we're really like. You know how much we desperately need you. But God, I pray that you would do this work. Surprise us by blessing us with more patience, by giving us a, a kindness and a generosity so that even we are surprised when it happens. Do this, we pray as a work of your spirit. And in order to see this change, this transformation happen, Lord, we're going to try to spend time with you. We're going to try to enhance our relationship with your Holy Spirit because, oh, how we would love to see our lives look like this. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.